So hopefully you do have an outline. We are doing a series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. Uh, this series should last from uh, sometime we started in about mid-2019, and I think we'll finish it in mid to late 2023. And um, we are looking at 15 emphasis of the Word of God of Scripture that we think need to be rediscovered. That is, we need to do a rethink. We need to dig deep. We need to, to study them. You know, uh, one of the principles of interpreting Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so um, the 15 emphases are, are on the board back of us, and then that is designed so, it, it, you know, emphasis 6 and through 10 will come up, and then 11 through 15, then it will go back through 1 through 5. But the Word of God is kind of a, is a short statement there. But what we're really trying to do with the Word of God is get back to understanding that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's a doctrine called the plenary inspiration of Scripture. It's mentioned in your outline under Roman numeral 4, which was because the first message we did when we, when we turned to Emphasis 5 uh, we, we spent about nine months going through the first four emphases that are listed up there. And then uh, emphasis five, we started by talking about um, the idea of, of restoring the whole scripture. So many times today, people know parts of scripture. And there are actual paradigms of interpretation, principles of hermeneutics that are rampant in the church today that, that cause us to think certain parts of Scripture are more important than other parts of Scripture. And you can't interpret Scripture apart from the other parts of Scripture. The key to interpreting any one Scripture is what does the whole Scripture say? And so, um, so that's what we've been kind of looking at in the last five messages or so, which takes us through... Uh, the first seven or so Roman numerals in your review. Up toward the top, under where today's title is Emphasis 5D, small c, Brief Introductory Survey of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, often called the books of Moses, the Torah, the Law, and uh, um, so forth. And we're focusing at this time on Genesis, and we'll probably be on uh, that focus for another week beyond th this week. So we're probably doing four or five weeks on just Genesis. But we're looking at the whole Pentateuch as, at the same time a little bit. So uh, last week, uh, we looked at um, uh, seven reasons that both Genesis and the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch are foundational to studying all of Scripture. Many Christians today have not read those books. Or if they have read them, they've read Genesis, maybe. Uh, but you need to read all five of those books to understand any of the Bible. Um, they're, they're foundational. And so we gave seven reasons for that. Uh, I started to say, and I got it off track, up under the title 5DC, there's today's date, and then it says request outlines by emailing Stephen Leopold. Now, eventually, we're actually in the process of redoing our website. So if you don't know this, our, all the messages, uh, both the 930 messages and the 1030 messages, are on, on the website. 
uh, on, as podcasts going back to, I think, around 2014. And um, the outlines are available for my messages. Now, some, some guys like John Weiss didn't do outlines that, uh, that, that he made public. But my outlines are always available through emailing Stephen Leopold and his emails up at the top there. Uh, soon, the outlines will be right on the website as PDFs, and it will, it will help you if you have the outlines. And it's not a problem to, to, to email you the outlines. And we even have little pre-made emails where if you want a particular series like the Grace Upon Grace series, you, Stephen will send you all the links to the whole series with all the outlines all in one email, and all you got to do is click on the links and listen to the whole series. So, um, so uh, that that's hopefully good good news for you. All right, so today we're we're going to continue on in in looking at the Pentateuch and look and with a particular emphasis on Genesis. And we're going to talk about 10 major themes. So I need you to hear this kind of, uh, I don't know, accurately. Keep this in mind. All the major themes of the Bible start in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. All of them are further elaborated and developed in the rest of the book of Genesis. Then they're further elaborated and developed in Exodus through Deuteronomy, the the other uh, four books that Moses wrote. And then finally, uh, they're they're developed, well, I just did say next, they're developed in the rest of the Old Testament. And finally, they're, they're culminated in the New Testament. So the Bible is written... uh, was written over a 2,000 year period. It, uh, over uh, 40 human authors were used by God to write it, but it's written by one person, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the Bible uses a lot of themes and a lot of things that great literature always use, like there are themes that go through the whole Bible, there are word pictures or Im- images. So, for instance, trees. Uh, trees are symbolic of certain things in the Bible, and it's kind of important to see that. Uh, the Bible starts in a garden, and that garden is a theme that goes through the whole Bible, and the garden becomes a city. And the, the, the city culminates with the New Jerusalem, the city of God, which is the church. And so, uh, as we're going to see today, God has always had one of the major themes of the, of the whole Bible is that God is bringing the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is a temple. It's a sanctuary. It's a place where the presence of God is fully manifest. There is no need for a light in heaven because the light of God shines throughout everything. And so um, there, the, 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 uh, the temple, the sanctuary of heaven, is a, is a place fully filled with the, the Spirit of God everywhere. 
and God's purpose in creating the universe, the physical dimension, God is a spirit, John 4, 23, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the material dimension of life was not, uh, didn't exist from all eternity. It was created by God at a point in time. God dwells outside and above time. I'm, I'm getting into my material, so I probably should just get into it. Um, but, I, you know, um, I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is there's, there's major themes that, that, that are developed from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and they go all the way through Revelation. And, and we're supposed to see them by seeing symbolism and images and the kinds of things that good literature has. Uh, my favorite uh, human novel author is a very anti-Christian author, a pro-communist author named John Steinbeck. And John Steinbeck uh, hated God and Christ, and there's a monument to his glory in, uh, in Red Square in uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, or, um, yeah, is it in Moscow? It's in, it's in Moscow? Okay. And uh, so, uh, you know, but what I like about John uh, Steinbeck is the vividness of his imagery that he uses in his writing. And uh, the amount uh, he gets you to enter into the story, but more importantly than the story, he gets you to empathize and enter into and feel what the characters feel and think and so forth. And so the Bible does a similar thing. So even though the Bible is written by, uh, through the instrument of 40 human beings, and it was written on three continents over 2,000 years, it tells one story. And uh, it's the greatest story that was ever told, of course. So uh, as you're following the outline, uh, at the top there's a couple uh, uh, verses listed that are key to this series. Isaiah 2, uh, 1 through 4. Uh, is quoted by Micah in Micah chapter 4, 1 through 5. They were contemporaries and traveled together. And one of them uh, uh, plagiarized off the other one. <laughs> so, um, there you go. So, um, again, we looked at the seven reasons why uh, Genesis and the Pentateuch are foundational last week. Then we looked at the ten major divisions of Genesis, all of which start with a phrase, these are the generations of. Genesis is a book of fathers and sons, and in some cases, mothers and daughters. There's several mothers and daughters that are very important in Genesis, like Eve, the mother of all human beings, uh, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, uh, Rachel, and Leah, Leah Gray, and Jen <laughs> You didn't know that our own Leah Gray was in the book of Genesis. 
Last week, uh, we covered that, uh, ironically, on Father's Day. But uh, Genesis is a huge book about fathers and sons and about generations. People always say, oh, I hate the genealogies. Well, it's about the genealogies. It's about that uh, in, in psychology today, in sociology, they always ask a question, are, things, are people primarily influenced by heredity or by their environment? And the biblical answer is clearly we're most influenced by heredity. We inherited our sin uh, from our forefathers. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is you always were taught uh, in, in biology classes that if you uh, cut the tail off of uh, a mouse and then you cut the tail off of its son or daughter's uh, mouse and, and so forth and do this for 20 generations, the 21st generation will still be born with a tail. Of course, that's true. However, they are actually discovering now the characteristics like alcoholism and, and many other characteristics like that are actually passed down genetically. And uh, your, your, own, your actual sins and character somehow uh, influence uh, traits that you'll pass down. And uh, that's actually undeniable scientifically at this point. And that's what we should expect because of the whole idea of spiritual heritage and, and so forth. All right, so let's today we're going to look at 10 major biblical themes. Again, they start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They're developed further in the book of Genesis. They're developed still further in the Pentateuch and so forth, all the way through to the New Testament. Um, the first one is that God is eternal creator. God is outside and above time. So I love the song Amazing Grace. Who doesn't? Does anybody not like the song Amazing Grace? Uh, but when it, in the one verse that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun with no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun, it's actually bad theology. Because you won't be there 10,000 years. The presence of God just is. It's outside and above time. And you, we will be there forever and ever and ever. But uh, time is, is irrelevant. Uh, God created time as part of his purposes in, in, in creating mankind to build his temple into a body of people. But time just exists for God's purposes, and it's actually a construct that, uh, that God lives above and we will dwell in. When, you know, the scripture says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in man's heart. When you worship and you come into the presence of God, you should be able to sense spiritually Timelessness. Many of you have touched that without even realizing it.
So the Bible starts with, uh, I have there Colossians 1.16. You might want to look that up. It's a verse about how God created all things. And the Bible starts with, in the beginning, you know, the old joke, when is baseball first? Talked about in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Um, uh, the Greek word there is, is RK. It's the same it's the same exact phrase that John uses in, in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, NRK and halagos. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so uh, RK, we get archaic from. And it means in the ages past. It's, it's, it's a word that denotes outside and above time. Before there was time. Isn't there like a Disney movie, like The Land Before Time or something? Isn't, isn't there something like that? For, for, for little kids? Um, so, in the beginning, God created. That's a huge phrase. Because the material realm didn't exist. God spoke it into being. Now, that's important because if you look at the four major worldviews, uh, polytheism, pantheism, theism, or monotheism, and lastly, materialism. A materialist worldview believes that matter is forever. But matter is always breaking down into forms that are, that are uh, less uh, structured and, less, and, and the energy is released and so forth. And so actually, if, if matter was forever... There would, we wouldn't be here because <laughs> it, it would all broke down into nothingness trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years ago. Matter had to start at a point in time. Whether you want to believe in something like the Big Bang Theory or whatever. And so when the Bible, when God's, it said, God said, let there be light, the, the Hebrew word, and then the, even in the Septuagint, the, it really means let there be light, 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 light. And it's so it's a creative word that's continuing to be. So light is continuing to be created. So what mankind just recently discovered in the last few decades, that the, the universes and the galaxies and the solar systems are still rolling out at the edges of the universe, the Bible told us that in Genesis chapter 1. And there will be no end to that. The universe will continue to spin off new galaxies, uh, which will contain new solar systems, unless God has some reason that he's going to eventually say, that's enough. But the Bible doesn't seem to hint at that. Now, uh, Hebrews 11.3 is a great verse. It says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God out of nothing. So in theology, they call that ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. And uh, I, I have read, oh, 30, 40, 50 books on creation versus evolution. I am a six-day creationist. I actually think evolution is uh, quite an absurdity for a no number of reasons. 
But I don't think that uh, either being an uh, evolutionist or a creationist has anything to do with science. Science has to do with present processes that, uh, that we can make tests about and, and verify the test and so forth. And none of us are quite that old. Some of you probably think that I am, but none of, none of us are, were around. It's not a scientific question. It never has been. It never will be. It's, it's a question that de- deals with uh, uh, epistemology. How do we know anything? And what we're saying, what Christians are saying is by faith, we understand. Now, faith is a very misunderstood word. What the, what the secular culture thinks faith is, is faith is, is work, working up a little head of steam and then trying to make some kind of irrational leap to get to the other side. But faith has nothing to do with that. Faith has very much to do with, if, if I were to have an argument with John Luke about, I have a friend uh, named uh, Austin Kempton. If John Luke were to say, you don't have a friend named Austin Kempton, what he would have to do to, to argue his case is he would have to know every person who's ever lived. At least he'd have to know every person that I've ever known. The burden of proof would be uh, impossible. But all I'd have to do is introduce him to Austin to prove my case. Now, if he wanted to be a great skeptic, he could say, how do I know he's Austin Kempton? And I could say, Austin, could you show him your driver's license? (laughs) Now, he could continue to be a skeptic. Well, how do I know he didn't steal this driver's license or it doesn't have, you know, false information on it or something? But the, the, the debate between John Luke and myself about Austin deals with a branch of knowledge called epistemology, or, and it has to do with how do you know anything? And we know some things by uh, the, applying the appropriate evidence to the appropriate question. And so what, evolution versus creation is actually not a scientific question at all because nobody could repeatedly verify anything to do with it. But there, but it, but it, there is a knowing and a knowing for certain. In the Gospel of John, it says, whoever has believed Christ has set his seal that God is true. I'll tell you how... I could give you arguments today about spontaneous generation. So, for instance, um, if, if uh, evolution were true, then at some place, somehow, life had to come from non-life. Believe it or not, lots of your tax dollars go to people who want to prove that that can happen. And no one has ever got close Oh, every 10 or 15 years or so, you, there's some 
you know, article that somebody has, you know, created life from non-life in a test tube in Belgium or somewhere. And uh, it always proves to be a hoax. So, you know, the only difference between Darwin, if you go back and look at the ancient mythopoeic literature of, say, the Egyptians, their stories say stuff like, in the beginning, there was the primeval muck, like... Very similar to the bang, Big Bang Theory, right? And uh, out of the primeval muck came a cow. And Darwin, being much more intelligent, said, out of the primeval muck came a single-cell uh, organism. That seems so much more believable until you realize that how complex a single-celled organism is. And you still have the problem with inanimate has to become adamant. Now that's just one issue in the in the creation evolution debate. But I'm not a, a creationist because of that. I'm a creationist because when I was 17 years old, God came knocking at my door and revealed Himself to me, and I became a Christian. And I had had some pretty intense out-of-the-body experiences because I was very heavy into the, to the Eastern religion side of psychedelic drugs where you try, you know, your spirit leaves your body and you meet soul guides and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I, had, I started going to hell regularly and often, and I couldn't stop it. And I had no control over it. This happened to me at all times of day and night, and was very, I was fighting for my very sanity. And so as I uh, decided I was going to follow Christ, because I knew that I had to make an eternal decision, is the very first night this happened, um, I didn't know where to turn, because I had been a product of the hippie generation, and there was a doctrine called the Generation Gap. And we were taught that anybody that was a little older was untrustworthy. And the only Christians I knew were over 40. And when you're 17, you don't realize how soon you're going to be over 40 yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And so I knew, which is uh, very much in the nature of things and the way God reveals himself, I knew that I should start reading the Bible. And I read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And my entire life, I had been brainwashed in evolution. In every school, there were, I read about cavemen on the back of the Wheaties box while I was eating cereal. The whole culture believes in evolution. And so I am reading about Adam and Eve and so forth, and I said, Lord, do you want us to believe that it literally happened this way. And the Spirit of God spoke deeply to me. Yes, this is how it happened. This is accurate history. And I became a creationist that moment. And by faith, I understood. And, and quite quickly, within seconds, the, the absurdity of evolution be, started to become clear to me. Not just the spontaneous generation thing, but there's hundreds of problems with evolutionary thinking 
For instance, when you take complex organisms and you introduce a, chan a change in them, uh, the chances of that being a positive change are infinitesimal. All mutations are a loss in information. The chance for a, a fortuitous mutation is one in billions. And to believe that millions of those fortuitous uh, changes happened over time is, is really an irrational leap. Now, I'm sure there's lots of guys in our audience that are more knowledgeable of science than me and, and could give you lots of better explanations. But You know, there's, of course, um, the whole issue of, of age and time. Uh, you know, one of the, the evolutionists say, well, there are clearly things in the universe that are billions and billions of years old. And as a, as a person who believes the universe started around six or 7,000 years ago, I, I say, of course there are. Jesus created wine as his first miracle. And I know enough about wine to know the best wines are aged in a very meticulous way at very controlled temperatures and humidities and, and, and the right kinds of oak-tasting barrels and so forth. As uh, those of you who know about bourbon and so forth know that that also applies. Right? So, uh, uh, in the very nature of things, God had to create lots of processes that were already old the second they were created. Most theologians believe that Adam was about 30 years old on the day of his creation. So the fact that uh, for a Christian, we believe in a God that's outside and above time, that of course when he created uh, millions and billions of things that he created had aged the second they were created. But one of the problems that you can't answer is there are also quite a few processes in our own atmosphere that, that couldn't possibly be older than seven or 10,000 years. You know, so look that up if you want to study the question under arguments for a young creation and so forth. If you're going to study it, I would highly recommend. Uh, I, I know Ken Ham personally, and, and I, I like him. He's a great guy. But I would say his organization is probably not as solid as, say, the Institute for Creation Research and, and so forth. But, I mean, if, there's lots of good books on that, but I would point you toward RCR if you're going to study that. Uh, Henry Morris and his son and Dwayne Gish and all those guys. But anyway, so the point is this. God is an eternal creator, and by faith we understand that. And people get all upset that evolutionists don't see that and so forth. Guess what? Blind people are blind. Dead people are dead. And the Bible makes it clear that outside of Christ we are spiritually dead. If you don't expect unbelievers to have a lot of wrong ideas, you're probably reading the wrong Bible. 
Of course unbelievers have a lot of crazy ideas. Now, I wish, you know, I, I'm making a lot of attempt these days to stay on, on uh, not, not, not go over the time. So I wish I could develop all that further. I, I'll just say this. The, the fact that God is, that everything is created by God has implications for every aspect of life. And that's made clear all through the Bible. Men do not want there to be a creator because if he's creator, then he must be judge. And therefore, we must have accountability. And that's what we don't want. Before I was a Christian, I, I said for you know 17 years, I don't know if there's a God. I didn't realize till long after I'd become a Christian and I started to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and so forth, I didn't realize how deeply I was hoping there wasn't a God. I was such an immoral, sinful, humanistic person. I actually had arguments with God my first few months of being a Christian. Why couldn't you wait until I've read all these, I've heard all these testimonies of people who bottomed out and got to the end of their rope and, and they you know, came to God like, I was having so much fun. Why couldn't, why couldn't you have waited to reveal yourself to me till I burned out some more? I was actually that much of a hedonist. That's pathetic. <laughs> That's how sinful I was. I would, if People who are lost are pursuing being lost. They're not neutrally lost. As the Romans clearly says, men, fallen men suppress the truths of God in unrighteousness. Even Christians, I'll never forget when Eugene Tenbrink, our good friend Victor Tenbrink's father, who's now long passed away, first said to me in 1985, uh, you're supposed to go to church to seek God, but most people actually go to church to avoid God. And I, at first I was like, what? But the truth is, uh, most people, uh, that, that's one reason, like if you, that's one reason people choose churches. Like, I don't want a church that's going to challenge me to think too much. Or, or that there's going to be discipleship and accountability. And, uh, seeker-sensitive churches are much more fun. <laughs> Let's flip over. Secondly, uh, second major, I, I, might, I might have to do a whole week on each one of these. I'm all, I mean, these, each one of these could be a series in itself. That, that's the problem. These are major themes of the whole Bible. I didn't scratch the surface of the fact that God is eternal and creator. The implications of that we could talk about for a year or two. The, the fact is God's a triune God. What's called the Shema, Israel, Israel, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God is one God, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When Jesus quotes that in Mark 12, 38 through, or 28 through 34, Jesus adds, um, with all your mind uh, as well as to all your soul. Now, um, 
the Septuagint, uh, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, Jesus is quoting from that when, and, and not from the Masoretic text when he quotes that. But the mind is part of the soul, uh, but I believe the scripture is really trying to emphasize, you know, what, what we have today in evangelicalism is a very in, anti-intellectual Christianity. You actually hear people say, I don't want all that big, you know, like vocabulary stuff and so forth. And uh, part of loving God is you have to love God with every aspect of your being. Every aspect of your being was damaged by the fall of man, and God wants to restore every aspect of your being as you grow in Christ. So that means I, you know, I need to start listening. God is speaking a four-letter word to me sometimes. And that word is D-I-E-T. <laughs> and I, I, I really need to start listening, you know, and uh, even though it's a ah, four-letter word, uh, but uh, you know, God, God wants you to love him with, with your physical being. God wants you to love him with your intellect. God wants you to love him with your emotions. Part of walking with God is to become more emotionally mature and stable. God wants you to develop your social skills. It's amazing how poor some Christians' social skills are. That's not godly. You know, uh, to dress inappropriately in various situations, it's not godly. You know, I always tell people, always dress just one notch higher than the social situation calls for. You know, you don't wear a tie to go play rugby. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but sometimes we put no attention on these kind of things, and that's not loving God. Now, the whole idea of the Trinity and that there's three persons and one being has implications for everything. Again, we could do a whole series on this. And uh, the, um, some of the implications are that the Trinity is the matrix for all of life. Do you know what God's called your marriage to, to be? As good a fellowship as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have. You think you have a great marriage? Think again. God's called our fellowship to be based on, as good as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people like the fact that at Grace Christian Fellowship, compared to our, the rest of our culture, there's a lot of community here. But that doesn't, there's a lot of room to grow in community. We're not that great at relationships. The Trinity is the matrix for everything. It has very much to do with the whole idea of, of there being order because God is one, and therefore every, every, every academic subject is interrelated. 
In the 12th and 13th century, the idea was born in Western Christian culture of a university. And it's amazing that almost all universities are extremely hostile to God and Christianity today. What's, what's amazing about that is the very idea of a university is a biblical concept. It comes from the idea, a verse, that, that truth is one. And so when you create an environment where the sociologists and the biologists and the mathematicians uh, and the philosophers have to all interact with the, the musicians and so forth, the chances of, of growing in truth should be better. But our modern universities have rejected the whole epistemological idea of truth. Um, to, the, to modernism, truth is whatever you want it to be. But in a biblical idea, truth is, is, is God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is, is not inside our heads. And what, you know, we, we live in a culture where everyone has their own private little religion. And they actually take surveys of like what people believe and think. And, and the average person, you'll hear this all the same time. You'll hear hundreds of people say this. What I believe or what I think and what they're saying is, I'm the, I'm the truth and the way and the life. And my point of view is, is the correct one. And that, that's what people are actually assuming in their statements of talking to each other. Wow, arrogant. Man. Um, I wish I had about another 17 years to talk. The longest message I ever gave was uh, seven hours. We're not going to go quite that long today. Uh, dominion or kingdom. The fact is, God lives in an eternal kingdom. When, in, in, uh, when Jesus was teaching us to pray, he wasn't teaching us that we should recite the Lord's Prayer. I'm all for reciting the Lord's Prayer. Uh, because when he says, don't use vain reputation, a lot of evangelicals interpret that as we shouldn't say pre-written prayers that we've memorized. What he's coming against is a formula that if I say something uh, like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, over and over, that somehow I'm going to unlock the door to uh, get the, the prize or something. There's actually an idea in Roman Catholicism called ejaculations where you uh, say some kind of... Uh, formula like that and if you say it a 10,000 times you kind of earn brownie points or something that idea was very prevalent in the day of Christ Jesus Jesus is saying don't think that you can just say some chant over and over and over again and and somehow that uh, manipulate God with it just like in the faith message versions of Christianity, that if you say, I believe and I confess, and I, if you confess and believe, pop, then you make God do stuff. That's called witchcraft. It's called the faith message, but it's actually witchcraft. It's taught in a lot of churches today. Um, Jesus is not talking about pre-written prayers that we memorize and, and repeat 
he's talking about a belief that the formula of memorizing them and repeating them is like a magic potion that's going to open and make God do what we want him to do. That's what he's talking about. So it's fine to quote uh, pre-written prayers. that They're great. And what Jesus was teaching us, though, in, in, in Matthew 6, and when the t- disciples asked him to teach them a prayer, he was not, not teaching them a formula to repeat. It's an outline. It's the, it's the approach to prayer. So part of that is we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're supposed to pray is things that will release God's will into the earth. Heaven is a place where everything is done perfectly according to God's will. There's no disobedience or sin in heaven, nor are there any of the consequences of sins. There's not aging or death or sickness. There's not cancer, what have you. What God's will is, is that his will would, it would come to earth through his church. So, God, that's what dominion is about. Dominion is about bringing the kingdom. When, when man sinned, the earth became under the dominion of sin, Satan, and that was therefore subject to the laws of sin and death and so forth. God has purchased the, the kingdom back through, through the incarnation, the sinless life, the death burial of Christ. And so th- in Christ, we are supposed to be bringing God's will into every area of our lives individually, our lives as families. The church is supposed to be a family of families. You know, uh, there's no big secret to how... Uh, how we decide who's going to be leaders and stuff. I look first and foremost at how's the marriages, how's the kids turning out, you know, this kind of thing, because uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, uh, that there's a uh, humanist psychologist that's rich and famous and has a TV show called Dr. Phil. I'm sure most of you probably heard of him. And he has a little line, he goes, how's that working for you? That's, you know, like, you know, I actually say that to people all the time. They tell me, well, I'm doing this, this, and this, and this. Well, how's that working? <laughs> because that's, that's the bottom line is, like, how's that working? <laughs> True faith always produces works. And God's will, I, he, you, he, you didn't choose him. He chose you, and he appointed you to bear fruit. And he wants your fruit to be eternal. So when, you know, we have what we call the five C's of leadership in this church, the, the uh, uh, caller before the calling, because so often in our idolatrous, sinful hearts, we want to put our calling ahead of the caller. Anybody ever done that? I've struggled with that my whole Christian life. I have to constantly take that before the Lord. Lord, conquer me. Make it that I'm about you, the caller, not about my vocation or ministry calling, that I, whatever I do there is just because I love you. 
That's so important. Character before charisma. Lot, you know, we see all the time in the sports world especially, but in the music world and so forth, you see people whose lives are destroyed because their giftedness outruns their character. Right? That that's like that's if that's the major theme of ESPN is people, you know, athletes who self-destruct and so forth because they don't have the character to with to stand up to the level of giftedness they have. Character before charisma is a huge thing. Been there, done that. That's been a thing I've struggled with all my adult life. And that leads to the fifth C, chosen. And the way God chooses is he starts to put fruitfulness on your kids, on your vocation, on your uh, people you're leading to Christ. People don't lead, you, you don't lead people to Christ. You're, if anything, ministry is like being a midwife. You get, God gives us the grace, you know, uh, as Paul said, that he, he planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. Ministry, fruitfulness in ministry, is just the blessing of God. Uh, as, as you grow closer to Christ, he'll make you fruitful. And it's a part of the way he guides us. If, uh, your, if your efforts aren't being that fruitful, it's because God wants you to adjust your thinking. You know, in terms, in terms of ministry, we can give people titles. We can say, you're the worship leader, or you're the head of the building committee, or you're the head of the whatever, but we can't make you fruitful. You know, I, I do my best, you know, to disciple people and so forth, but... I'm always amazed when someone starts to become fruitful because it's like somehow they got fruitful despite the fact that half the stuff I told them probably confused them to death. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Well, I guess we touched on three of the ten, and so we'll pick them up next week. Uh, turn with me to Genesis 1, 29 through 31. Shoot, I had a phone here. Here it is. And we're going to go right into our communion meditation. Let's have uh, the elders and Daniel Williams come up. Oops, hold on. I got to open up my... uh... Ah. Come on. Slow slow, uh, phone. Genesis 1, that's uh, right after Genesis 0, for you computer people. Uh, Verses 29 through 31. Uh, A lot of people don't get this at all, but in the Bible, we're going to, number um, 6 is covenant. And, you know, you could make a good case for each of these ten major themes that this is the most important one. Certainly you could with covenant. 
Uh, if if in, you know that we have a book of the year idea, and years ago, we uh, three or four years ago, we had a book called The Heart of the Old Testament by somebody Youngblood. What, what, what was it? What, whatever his name was, he identified nine major themes of the Old Testament. If you noticed, uh, there's a lot of overlap between my ten and his nine. But he, interestingly, had two chapters on covenant and only one chapter on all the others because the Bible is a book of eight major covenants and Hebrews 13.20 talks about the eternal covenant. All covenants have about 10 or 12 major characteristics. One of them is their ceremonies to initiate or enact the covenant. That's what we call a wedding, for instance, right? And then there are ceremonies to renew the covenant. That's why Israel would have like, you know, the festivals and, and during the festivals they'd read the law and so forth. There's, there's uh, ceremonies of renewing the covenant. Part of why the Lord's Day is so important, if you don't emphasize the Lord's Day, that's, that's an indicator to you that something's wrong with your re- relationship with God. If you don't emphasize the Lord's day enough, that's, that means there's problems in your thinking about your walk with God. And one of the things that, God, that Jesus did is Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, also called Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. It's also called communion, koinonias, uh, the sharing of all things. And when Jesus initiated this, he did it with bread and wine because all covenants have ceremonies of initiation and those ceremonies always involve food and drink. So the first covenant in the Bible is called the eternal covenant. The second covenant is called the dominion covenant or the creation covenant. Because of the misunderstandings about covenant in our time period, almost all theologians call the, 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 the Adamic covenant, it's called three different things, the covenant of Adam. Some of the covenants are named after the people, like the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so forth. Sometimes they're named after what the major idea of them, like the Noahic covenant, sometimes called the societal covenant. Uh, the, the covenant with Adam is sometimes called the creation covenant or the dominion covenant. And because of not understanding covenant, even the best of theologians today will call that a covenant of works. But all covenants have requirements for obedience and they have sanctions for obedience and sanctions for disobedience. There's blessings for obeying and curses for disobeying. And all covenants are initiated by God, the covenant sovereign. They're, they're what's called Susan Tree covenants. Uh, the biblical covenants are based on the formula for covenants in the ancient cultures like Mesopotamia and so forth. And they're between a sovereign and his vassals. And the, the, the sovereign initiates the covenant. The vassal doesn't have any choice. The vassal is told... I now own your land, (laughs) 
you know, like in uh, in their Star Wars, I like I like there's that scene where he, uh, Darth Vader board goes on the star of uh, or, or what's that guy um, Lando, Lando Calrissian or something like that, and he goes. And Lando goes, that wasn't the deal we made. He goes, I've altered the covenant. Pray that I don't alter it anymore. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's, you know. <laughs> now, that, that's a guy who understands Susandry covenants. We just happen to have a Susandry covenant with a beneficial beneficiary. Okay, uh, so uh, you you can... Accept it or reject it, but you can't alter it. Part of the whole problem of modern Christianity is this whole, uh, you know, taking verses out of, you know, like everyone has their own little religion in their own little head. And, uh, and you know, I, man, I, you know, this week I was crying over, I was counseling someone over the phone and I thought, you know, here's a guy who's been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, but nobody's ever helped him. He does, he's never even gotten past the, some of the basics. And that's what the state of the church today. And so, uh, you know, when God makes covenants, they're always by grace. You don't deserve to be in a covenant with God. And those covenants always have requirements for obedience. And they have blessings for obedience and 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 curses and, and um, sanctions for disobedience. And you can never obey the covenant without the grace of the sovereign Lord giving, uh, uh, empowering you to do the covenant. So my point is this, even the dominion covenant, the Adamic covenant, the creation covenant, is, is a covenant that God entered into Adam by grace. Adam didn't deserve to be created he didn't deserve to be created in relationship with God. And like in the new covenant, uh, you know, this is, if, if how can you say you uh, love God if you don't love your brothers who were made in the image of God? There's a requirement, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. All covenants have commandments. And so the, new, the dominion covenant was a covenant like all the other covenants of it's not like one covenant in the Bible is different than all the others. It's a covenant of grace. And it has ceremonies for enactment. And so in, that's why in Genesis 1.29 it says, Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. That comes right after he tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, because they needed the food to celebrate the covenant. And the wine. So when Christ initiated the new covenant in his blood, he took bread And he said, take, eat. In John 6, he said, if you don't eat of my body, you can't have any part with me. We, we eat 
to enter covenant with Christ. We eat to renew the covenant. I've been to many fine weddings. I was thinking about Daniel and Christiana's wedding a lot as I was preparing this message. And, you know, uh, both uh, the night before, I I don't remember exactly what happened or why, but I remember for the the rehearsal dinner, I was late uh, afterwards. I had certain things to do or whatever, and, like, they were almost done eating. (laughs) And... uh, as you can tell, I have my credentials right here. I love food. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm late for the celebration. <laughs> so fortunately, they had saved some. Um, as, we, as we do this today, this is not some light thing. On the other hand, it's a festive thing. The first requirement of taking uh, communion is that it's a covenant meal with our covenant Lord who has purchased our life. He's washed you from every sin. The first thing that we need to do is, is uh, as these guys come forward, spend a, a minute examining your life before God and make some commitments. Ask God for grace to do this, to do that, to change this, to quit being so unfaithful with this, to quit forgetting your morning devotions or whatever it is that God is is uh, uh, dealing with you about. Take, eat, this is my body. And take, drink, this is my blood. Uh, the life is in the blood. Uh, none of us could come before God today without an expectation of God striking us dead if it wasn't for that we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so um, this, is, this is a covenant meal. Because, again, all covenants have ceremonies of renewal. And let's come and celebrate the feast and let's renew the covenant.